So let's hear the word of the Lord. This is Psalm, excuse me, 2 Peter 3 as we go through this passage, verses 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord a thousand, or one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." So, Lord, bless to our understanding your word. Uh, Motivate us, move us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So, when I was 15 years of age or so, 14 or 15, I had a summer job of clearing land for a factory that would be built in Yadkin County, North Carolina. And I was teamed with various people as trees were cut down and we would dig up the stumps and put them in the back of trucks and haul them to a place where they were burned and it was very difficult labor. But one of the men that I was teamed up with, I thought was an older man. He could have been 35, he could have been 75 because he was a, he was a Piedmont, North Carolina tobacco farmer. Tobacco was not being primed yet so he could break away and do this. He wore bibbed overalls. His hair was about an eighth of an inch long. He wore a baseball hat, wire rim glasses, and always had tobacco in his jaw. And he was, that's the way he was. So so many, many of my contemporaries had dads that looked like that. So I was with him. And he didn't, we didn't talk a lot. He didn't say a lot. I was 14, 15. Um, But I do remember two things he said to me. The first is we were riding down the road one day and we just had some stumps in the back of a truck and we were going to unload them. And he said to me, have you ever had stewed possum? And I said, no. And he said, I think the best food I've ever had is stewed possum. And I said, really? I said, what do you say? And it stopped at that. And I still to this day have never had stewed possum. The second thing he said that I remember is this. We were riding down the road one day, and he looked up at me and said, you know, I've come to this conclusion, that if you accept the first verse of the Bible, life seems to hold together. And I looked at him quizzically, because I didn't know the first verse of the Bible, I think. And he said, which says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That's all he said. And I said, really? <laughs> said, no. But as I've thought about that, uh, I mean, that's true. So in Second Peter, we have these false teachers who came in among them and introduced destructive heresies and mislead many. And then their, their teaching centered around two poles of statement. The first is they said, you know, where is God? Creation is, or history is unfolding, and things go on and on and on, and there's no interruption in the unfolding reality of life. It's just going on and on and on. Where is God? And so, so Peter answered that by saying, don't overlook this one fact, brothers and sisters, that the Lord is patient, 
And the Lord is above time. One day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. It's a nanosecond in God's mind. God's above time. So, so this patient God, though, who is long-suffering and wants everyone to repent and everyone to come into faith, this patient God will one day call history to a close and there will be a day of judgment. Do not overlook that. So, so the two poles is where is God? The second one, they, they mocked the day of judgment. And so my thesis this morning is, if you begin wrong, you will not finish well, or you will not finish near as well as you could have. If you begin any mathematic equation and you get the basic formula wrong, you don't end up well. You don't get it right. And it's true in your world and life. You, if you don't begin well, you will not finish well, or you will not finish near as well as you could have if you had begun well. So we see this statement in Proverbs chapter 4, where the writer of Proverbs says that, that the the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which grows brighter and brighter and brighter until full day. But the way of the wicked is like, like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Path, brighter and brighter, deep darkness, stumbling. And we've seen in Romans chapter 1 where it says in verse 18 that, that the creative energy and the creative nature of God is, is clearly known to all men, and yet they suppress the truth. They, they push it down. They, he says... Peter does in chapter 3, verse 5, they, they intentionally overlook or they deliberately overlook the fact that God's a great creator God, that he's judged the world with a flood, and that he's coming again. They deliberately overlook the fact that the creator God and his, his reality are written on their hearts. And so Romans 1, Paul says that they suppress the truth, they, they push it down, they push it down, and he says this, for although they knew that God knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They, they denied, they denied, and they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he says three different times in verses 24, 26, and 28, God gives them over. God gives them over to lust in their hearts, to impurity. God gives them over to dishonorable passions, for the women exchange natural passions for unnatural ones. God gives them over, verse 28, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God removes his hand of protection. And so if you begin wrong, you do not end well or you do not end near as well as you could have. And so that's why this passage is, is incredibly important. There's a difference between deliberately overlooking in verse 5. Will you suppress the truth? In verse 8, the same word is used. He says, do not overlook. He's saying to the church, listen, you people who know Christ, when you're surrounded by a monolithic culture that never talks about the reality of God or eternity or judgment, when you're surrounded by people who mock the character of God, when you don't give your heart and your mind and your thought and your energy to think about him, it is, it is easy to merely overlook the reality that God is and that God is patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish but come to repentance and that one day there'll be a day called the day of judgment. Don't, church, don't overlook that. Let those thoughts be the controlling thoughts of your heart. There's a statement in the, in the worship guide from C.S. Lewis in a book called Surprised by Joy which talks about how he came to faith in Christ. He was a 31, 32-year-old professor of Renaissance literature, and he had been an atheist since he was 16 or 15, gone through the First World War, an atheist, wounded in battle, an atheist, 
And then he's exposed to people who really believe in Jesus and really love the gospel, and it shook his foundations. And they talked to him and debated him and befriended him. And this is what he writes. It's an amazing statement. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Malden. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. You hear that? Lewis said, I, I, I didn't want to meet this God. I, I didn't want to know there are standards that should govern my life. I didn't want someone else to call the shots other than me. So he was deliberately overlooking. And then he ends the quote with this. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? Lewis said, I want to escape the hound of heaven. I want to do my own thing. But it brought me in. And, and, and then the quote closes with this statement later in his body of work. He said, but once I came to know this God who is triune and glorious and wonderful, he, he says, I found, I found out that the, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. His compulsion is my liberation. Oh, I love that. His compulsion leads to my liberation when you see the goodness of God, the mercy of Christ. And I thought about Psalm 139. Psalm 139, the psalmist says something that if you just read it by itself, would be something that Lewis would have said before he was converted, or Aldous Huxley mentioned last week, would say before he was converted, or he wasn't converted before, the way he lived his life. It says this, verse 7, 9, it says in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or... Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I take the lower regions of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost part of the sea, even there you are. But then this is what the psalmist says. If, if I go there, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you, O oh God, form my inward parts. You did me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none. God, you've numbered my days. You made me. You loved me. And he says this, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So see, to see the love of Abba God, our Father, to see the love 
of the reality of God is to run to him. See, instead of darting away from him, you run to him. Instead of clenching your fists at him, you bow before him in worship because you understand that his compulsion is my liberation, your liberation. Or think of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. There's this verse that if you just quote it by itself without context, it says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And you say, oh, no. And, and, and if you stop there, there's no hope. But the very next verse, listen to the very next verse. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we accept without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In other words, yes, it's going to be laid bare. Yes, it's going to be seen. But you know what? You have a high priest who by his one work upon the cross has made you right with the living God, and you can be bold to approach the throne of God because you're clothed in the goodness of Jesus. So instead of running from, we run to. Instead of looking for the exit door, we worship because we see that he is gloriously good. So I say to you, church, this morning from 2 Peter, do not be so compressed by the cultural milieu around you and the drumbeat around you that you forget this one glorious fact. Your God and his triune glory is above time. And he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And there will be a day of judgment. And so I look at this verse, verse 10. It says this. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So three things it says here. First of all, it says it's going to be unexpected like a thief. It's going to be like a thief, unexpected. And yet you read the New Testament, and time after time, Jesus tells stories or parables about the coming of the landlord when it's unexpected, or the coming of the master when it's unexpected, or the coming of the bridegroom when it's unexpected. You have five foolish virgins and five wise virgins, or, or, or the coming of, of, the, of the, the man who gave out gifts and talents, and two used them, and one didn't. He came at an unexpected time, and time after time, he says, unexpected, unexpected, and still it says here, even though we know we're going to die one day, even though we know Jesus is coming again one day, he says it's going to come unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. How many times in the last few months have you picked up the paper or gone on the web and seen where a well-known sports person who's 70 or 75 dies, and you said, I cannot believe he died. Because in your mind... From the newsreels, you see him as a 30-year-old stud. But even great athletes get old. Or a beautiful actress or handsome actor died. But in your mind, you see them when they're 35 or 32 and they're in the prime of their life. But, you know, even beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people get old and die. And we say, wow, I'm shocked. I say it all the time. And I'm fully aware people die. Because I think we're programmed to not be expected. 
I think the writer of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, Solomon, who lived a bad life in middle age and walked away from the Lord and come back. He writes the book of Ecclesiastes and he says some incredible things. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, who, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And he answers the question in chapter 7. He says this, some wild statements. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Listen, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Really? What do you mean, Solomon? He says, you know, many people leave live in the house of feasting and merriment where they don't think about judgment, they don't think about eternity, they don't think about God. It is good at times to sit and be quiet and to realize life is short and it's a vapor. It, 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 when you deal with eternal verities and you think God's thoughts after him, at times you have, you, you have a, a sadness of face. When you repent, after repent of sin, you have sadness of face. But ultimately, when you think about the character of God, it will make you glad. He said, live a life that has urgency and purpose and dignity. Like Psalm 90 says, God, we live to be 70, maybe 80, and then we die. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So, because of the unexpected nature, we live with urgency. Secondly, because the heavens and the earth will, will pass away with a roar and be dissolved. Now, I think it means that they'll be purified to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. But because that's going to happen, they teach us to live with, with clear priorities. In Acts 24, Paul's making defense of his ministry, and he says, because I believe in the resurrection, I take, a, take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. Because I believe in the resurrection. So I, I make sure that the, the, the relationships and, and the way I live are lived with a priority under the watch care of the living God. I, I prioritize my life. It's interesting to just read stories about what people would grab if their house was on fire and burning to the ground. They did a survey in Queensland, Australia. The number one thing people would grab would be their purses and their wallets. Number three were their pets. I thought, don't be a pet in Queensland, Australia. There were some wildfires in California last year, and literally people had one and two minute warnings that they were going to be part of the path of destruction, and they could only grab what they could carry out. And so there are some pictures from Time Magazine did a, a photo survey of what different people grabbed. And one picture showed a, a young teenager who grabbed their saxophone. There he is. Because he wants to be a saxophonist. Another woman grabbed photographs. And it shows the photographs that she, she grabbed. There was a story in the news several years ago about an apartment fire. And the apartment burnt down. And the woman was being interviewed. She was very expressive. And she said, yes, the fire was raging. And as I left the house, I grabbed the cheese pizza. And she was very expressive, and uh, people were laughing about that. And, and it was, it was, you know, she was just, 
But then I, th I thought about it, I was teasing out in my mind, I thought, you know, there, there are people all around us that are living their lives as if, if their house is on fire, they would grab the cheese pizza. Because they're not living for other people. They're not living for anything significant. They're just living for themselves or just living barely. And in essence, their life is grabbing the cheese pizza. Church, don't grab the cheese pizza. Embrace your loved ones. Embrace purpose and dignity. Embrace those around you. And then Peter says that everything's going to be laid bare or exposed. And, and so I read that and I say, well, I need to play to an audience of one because God knows my heart and it's going to be exposed. And therefore, I need to be, need to be quick to repent when I sin. I need to be quick to run to Christ. I just need to be quick to do that because a great day is coming. Know this. And, and then, again, church, do not overlook this fact in the press of time. I was reading through Matthew 21 and thinking about this passage and it's just a, a, a wonderful passage. It's the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem on the week of his passion. And, and, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy in the Old Testament. And the people cut down palm branches and take off their cloaks. And they lay it in front of the path of Christ as he rides in Jerusalem. And they cry out continuously, voice after voice, Hosanna, which means our God saves. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, which is a term saying he's Messiah. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's a great celebration and anticipation. And Christ goes to the temple and the temple worship has been truncated and there are people selling things, making money off of other people entrepreneurially in the, in the temple, which was wrong. And Christ drives them out of the temple and he says, this is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And then it says this, and you can miss this unless you think about it. And then it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, if you had a physical deformity, according to Leviticus 21, you could not worship in the temple. So if you were blind or lame, you could not ever worship with God's people in the temple. So Jesus heals them and they go into the temple and they worship as a statement of what he would do for everyone who's ever trusted Jesus. He takes the broken and the blind and the lame and he heals us and says, you're free because of my blood shed for you. Go in the presence of the triune God. It's an incredible statement. And then the children who've heard their parents saying, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. They, they go around the temple and they're probably skipping and jumping rope. And they say time after time after time, Hosanna to the son of David. And the teachers of the law hear it. And the Bible says this. It's an amazing statement. Matthew says, when they saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, wonderful, and heard the chants of the children, they became angry. How dare you, teacher, let these children call you Messiah? How, how dare you? And then Jesus says to them, have you never read what the Bible says? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. See, these, these people thought children should be seen, not heard. They weren't very child-friendly. They were all about themselves. And Jesus says, you know, even nursing infants are having their minds and their hearts 
trained to praise me. Now, let me, I'm going to take a, a, a brief break, station break over here. So church, we're having vacation Bible school. Dates are in the bulletin. We're expecting 900 to 1,000 children over two weeks. That's a lot of kids. So we need 100 workers, 100 more workers spread over week one and week two. And so if you can't do it, you can't do it. But if you're, if you're free, I'd love to see your college and high school students serving. If you can do it, do it. I signed up last hour. I said, I'll be an assistant teacher, not a primary teacher, because I want to hug on kids, not discipline them. So that, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And I've already volunteered. So we have people walking. Out. Just think of touching, impacting, loving 900 to 1,000 kids. What a ministry. Anyway, we need you. People in yellow shirts will sign you up. Back to the text. So Jesus goes through this statement about being fruitful and doing the right thing and, and this glad and happy and celebratory theme. And he talks about people who did not bear fruit and how the nations will be brought in and they will bear fruit. And then he says this. People were arguing with him. The Jewish leaders arguing with him. And he says, have you never read in the scriptures, verse 42, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. And in this passage, is full of hope. He says this, it's amazing. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone, Christ, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Pulverize him. What Jesus is saying is that if you stumble over the cornerstone, if you look to me, your body can be put together orthopedically. We can put your body back together. But there comes a day when this stone will fall upon you and it's too late. You will be crushed. So I say to us, do not, church, overlook this fact. God is above time. God is patient. Not wanting anyone to perish. But there will come a day when it's, it's too late. One of my favorite people in church history is a man named Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary to Burma from the New England states. He went there and Real quick story, Judson was raised in a home of privilege. His dad was a pastor. He heard the gospel. He goes to Brown University as a student, and skepticism was the vogue thought system of that day. And so the skeptics basically said, where is God? There's not going to be a judgment. They mirrored 2 Peter chapter 3. They mocked the nature of God. They mocked the biblical definition of God. And so Judson was influenced by one young man especially and failed in their company renounced his faith, broke the heart of his mom and dad. Well, a couple of years into his college experience, he's taking a horse and he's going home. This is in the early 1800s, and he stops at a, 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 an inn that's halfway between Brown University and his home or Brown College, and he gets there, and the proprietor says, young man, we have one room left, but let me warn you, this one room is next door to a young man who's very sick, and he's moaning, and people be going in and out all night because he's very sick. And Justin says, I'm tired. I'll take anything you give me. So he took the room, went there, and he lay there for 30 minutes and heard the moans and the openings and closing the door. But he was so tired, he fell dead asleep. Woke up in the morning refreshed. No noise next door. Goes downstairs. He's checking out to pay. And he says to the proprietor, what happened 
to the young man next door to me last night, and the proprietor said, well, he died. It's too late for him. And Judson goes, oh, that's, that's too bad. He takes two steps, and he turns around and says, by the way, what was his name? And they told Judson the name. It was the name of his friend from Brown College who led him into skepticism. So he gets on his horse and he goes home and he says, every time the horse's hoof would hit the ground, he would hear this refrain, it's too late, it's too late, it's too late, it's too late. And when he got home, the Lord had worked in his heart. He had repented of his sin. He had embraced Christ. And he told his mom and his dad, I've come to the Lord. So I just say to you, don't, don't overlook this fact. God is patient but there is a day of judgment. And listen, I'll say it again. If you begin wrong, you will end wrong or you will not end up where you could have been. Again, Proverbs chapter 8 says that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter. And so how do we get there? Well, verse 20 answers it. My son, be attentive to my words and incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all flesh. The scripture is healing and light. And it points us to Jesus. So let me give some application statements very quickly. This morning, I get up early, sun is not up yet, so I go outside, it's dark, and then you see how the faint glows of the morning coming up, and I go out and I position myself where I can see the full moon. It's beautiful. And it gets lighter and lighter, and then I look to my left, and, and the sun starts slowly coming up. And it's just beautiful. And I go one minute here and one minute there, and man, I'm just going, wow, is this wonderful. And, and, and I think... How glorious. Now, if I am a noble non-believer, a noble, a noble pagan, I say, wow, isn't creation something that, that's maybe, maybe, I'm not sure, but maybe there is a God somewhere by some name that somehow put this in motion and he's walked away and look at what we have. Wow. But, but how much more, 1,000 times more should I say, this all was made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. He spoke this into being. And this God is intimately involved in my life, and not anything will happen to me today that doesn't go through his hands. Blessed be your name. And on top of that, the new heavens and new earth will have greener greens and bluer blues, and there will not be any bodies that age or get colds or get cancer or get diseases. We'll have resurrection bodies that make the most beautiful body today look as nothing. Wow. And I thought about this article I read, and I'll just read the three paragraphs. It's about the Grand Canyon. And the writer says this, if you've, if you've not seen it, and I've never seen the Grand Canyon, okay? If you've not seen it, you will be told by anyone who has been there that there's no way to prepare yourself for it and the first time you gaze upon it. You may have seen photographs or films, but still there's no way. He said, I, I've heard that and I discounted it as mere hyperbole. My companion on my first visit to the Grand Canyon had been a firefighter for the Park Service and he loved the Grand Canyon so fervently that he got to be something of a nuisance. So I was determined to be totally unimpressed by the Grand Canyon when we got there. There's a concrete walk that led out toward what had to be the lip of the canyon. There were puddles and snow banks and slushy stuff all around me. And so 
I kept looking down to not step in water and get my shoes wet, and then I looked up, and there it was. The view, the one that has taken away the breath of so many visitors, the way it just had taken away mine. It's impossible to describe the majesty of the Grand Canyon. The mix of colors on the opposite side, the great depth of the Colorado River that is carved through the stone walls down to the earth's vitals, the play of light and shadow, the sheer undeniable immensity. There's just no way. You must see it for yourself as Theodore Roosevelt said every American must. It was Roosevelt who designated this wonder as a national park in 1908 and declared as his prerogative that these 800,000 acres were, quote, a national monument in order to let this great wonder of nature remain as it is now. You cannot improve on it, but what you can do is keep it for your children and your children's children and all who have come after you as the one great sight which every American should see, close quote. And I thought, as this guy just waxes eloquently and beautiful about the Grand Canyon, don't know if he's a believer or not, but how much more should I say, wow. A noble pagan can say, wow, but I think we should say, wow, more. Or, or another example, yesterday, day before yesterday, I'm going down 17, and I'm driving. I don't, I don't know about you men, if you're married, but my wife has a tendency to, do that, you know, whoa, whoa. And I'm going, whoa, 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 what's going on? Oh, I was thinking something, and I was going, don't do that, you know? So we're going down the road, and, uh, and, and I see some, a little squirrel playing on the side of the road. And, and we get close, and the squirrel, squirrel starts, you know, they run a zigzag like that. And, uh, you know, the car's next to me. I, you know, so, so as we get close to, to the squirrel, my wife goes, <gasps> thankfully he zagged instead of zigging. He zagged into squirrel freedom down into the bank. If he had done the other thing, I may have hit him. I don't know. But I go to her. I said, you know, did you just catch your breath over a squirrel? And she says, yes, I did. I said, a squirrel? I said, last I checked, they're not on the endangered species list. I mean, there are more squirrels in the low country than there are gnats, for heaven's sake. You said this, and she's absolutely right. She said, I know, but I hate to see any of God's creatures end their life being hit by a car. And I went, you're right. And as I thought about that, I thought of William Wilberforce, the great evangelical leader in Great Britain who for 35 years labored to eradicate slavery in the British Empire, and he did. And simultaneously with that, he started what became ultimately to be the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And he said, we can't beat our animals because our animals are made by God and we've been given a commission from the scripture to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth. And we do it as, as men and women under the eye of God. We don't obliterate or beat creatures. But see, so he gives us a place to stand. We ought to be people who love creation or, or this marriage. I'm just going to give you a few examples. I can do this all day. Marriage. Uh, marriage is wonderful, but it can be very difficult. And, and so for us who are Christ followers, we go to the Bible, and the Bible says to us, men, husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church. Be a servant leader. Put her welfare above your own. And, and wives, correspondingly, you respect your husband 
and you submit to his authority as the church does to Jesus. You don't submit when he's dumb and stupid and does ungodly things, but, but he tries to lead and he tries to go out. You stand there, you pray for him, and you applaud him, and, and you walk with him, and you follow him like the church does to Jesus. That's strong stuff. If I'm a noble non-believer, and there are many noble non-believers, why, 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 what are you doing in your marriage? Well, we try to honor each other because it, it goes well with us and, and because it's a good picture for our children because it holds societies together. And that's, those are good reasons, but it doesn't have the same thunder as husbands love your wives like Jesus loved the church. Or how about sex? Well, the Bible says, I should be a one-woman man. The marriage bed should be undefiled. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Because God who has spoken, and that's what he says, and that's the way we live. And so you, you talk to noble non-believers, there are many of them, and they'll say, well, we, we, we believe in monogamy because it, it's good economically. It, it raises healthy children, usually. It's good for cultures, and those are all wonderful reasons but we stand here because primarily God has spoken and his compulsion is my liberation. Or I think of the issue of, of abortion, which is not primarily a cultural issue for us. It's a biblical issue. The Bible says that God is the author of life and that we're fearfully and wonderfully made and we're woven together in the depths of the earth and God has numbered our days. So if God's the author of life and we're made Intricately in our mother's womb, we celebrate life and we protect life and we plead for the dignity and the sanctity of life. And if you're a noble, non-believer, you can say, well, you know, they used to tell us that at 12 weeks a child becomes a human being, but now we know through sonograms and medical research that have increased dramatically that, that life begins much sooner than that. And so we need to be very, very, very careful and very careful, and, and, and this is a hard subject, so every, we hope that abortions will be safe, legal, and rare. And we say, no, we just hope abortions don't happen. We labor to that end. So he gives us a place to stand. And if you begin wrong, church, you do not end well, or you do not end near as well as you could have. Or the issue of black lives matter. I mentioned that a few months, a couple months ago, where white lives matter, or Latino lives matter, or Asian lives matter, or whatever. You say to people who are noble, non-believers, why do black lives matter or Hispanic lives matter? And they say, well, because we need to care for people and we need to protect those who cannot protect themselves and we need to do this. And you say, I understand that. You say to the believer, why do black lives matter? Why do Asian lives matter? And we say, because men and women are made in the image of God. They're the crowning work of his creation. And so we protect every life with dignity. And every man is worthy of respect and Christian love, says our confession of faith. And so lives matter because God is the giver of life. You see, it gives you a place to stand. If you begin well, you follow the Lord, you end well. If you begin wrong, it's hard to end well. You don't end well when you don't end near as well as you could have. One of the amazing things about life and studying history and just observing people is I see people all the time who are brighter, more gifted, more talented, economically blessed, and, and their social standing, their background, they're blessed in every way, much more than a lot of my friends. 
and they don't end well because they begin wrong. And I see many people around me who are just regular folks, but they've begun with this understanding like my farmer friend in North Carolina in 1968. In the beginning, God, a speaking God, a creator God, a triune God who calls us to relationship. A triune God who calls us to embrace people made the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, God made mankind in his image. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. It gives you a place to stand. So do not forget, my brothers, that God is patient. God's above time. That God wants us to repent and have fellowship with him now and through eternity. But there comes a day when judgment falls. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that your compulsion is my liberation. Thank you that uh, to know you is to know truth. And to know you is to have a place to stand and stand and stand. And we thank you for noble non-believers who are gracious and kind and but Lord, how, how much more gracious and kind and discerning they would be if they knew the Lord of glory and they were immersed in the book called the Word of God. So to that end, let us preach Christ and teach Christ and plead with people. Lord, do not let us be so um, overwhelmed by the, the age uh, that we live in that uh, would not deal with judgment, not deal with eternity, that, that we are... Uh, people who are lulled into inaction. Let us be people who live with urgency and priorities and a desire to honor you. So we bless your name this day. We thank you. Thank you for the baptisms that will happen today and the celebration that that is. Thank you for your goodness. Have mercy upon us as we represent you this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.